Time for swordplay. Alex, an Anglican ambassador to the Vatican is being replaced after a 2008 Easter sermon surfaced of him preaching that Jesus was not physically resurrected from the dead. Well, that was a short-lived rise to power, and it? Yeah, and this is what you get, by the way, with uh, with liberal Christianity, progressive Christianity, where they'll say things like, you don't have to believe in the physical resuscitation of Jesus's earthly body in order to have faith in his resurrection, which to me, that's just an enigma wrapped in a mystery. That just, I, I don't get it, but anyway inside of a riddle. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Nahum chapters 2 and 3. Doubling it up today. Maybe that should be a reminder to the audience to go back and read the whole book of Nahum. Uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3, not very long. We covered the intro in chapter 1 last time. Today we're covering chapters 2 and 3. Read through it. Read through it carefully. Read through it perhaps in different translations. And then come back. Join us for the podcast. We got a lot of questions on the docket today, Nick. Sure what's do. up first? How about this right here in 2 verse 1, <clears throat> uh, which talks about the scatterer has come upon you. So you got to man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. Who is the scatterer? Your translation may say attacker. Who is the scatterer, and uh, who does he come up against? Huh. That's a good question, Nick. What do you think? You know, most agree that the scatterer is a coalition of Medes under uh, Syaxeres and... The Babylonians, <clears throat> who are under Nabopolizer, Nahum may have known that it would be this alliance of foreign powers which would bring down Nineveh. I mean, he's, uh, from my perspective on the book of Nahum, the nearness of the scattering so close that he's actually speaking of it in the present tense here. And that's why you have man the ramparts, collect all, and all that. It's all in the present tense. Uh whether he did or not, ultimately, Nahum would no doubt see Yahweh as the scatterer supreme, the one who is behind these human physical forces, uh, ensuring that his will is accomplished here on earth, bringing about judgment in time, historically, on the nation of Assyria, Nineveh here, picturing that whole nation uh, as a whole, it would seem. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, I like what you said uh, about Yahweh as the scatterer supreme. It's interesting. Um, scattering was the policy of Assyrian imperialism. So you march into a nation, you destroy it without mercy, you bind them, and then you scatter them as slaves in a land not their own. You know, even if a vassal nation in covenant with Assyria was too difficult to handle, here's how they deal with them. They just crush them. They'd crush them to dust. They'd scatter their ashes to the wind. I found uh, when I was looking at Assyrian history, there was an inscription from when Ashurbanipal defeated the uh, territory of Elam, and he wrote that he scattered their gods to the winds. Kind of ties in that whole earthly and heavenly conflict uh, paralleling each other. Yeah. But now... Here's Yahweh. Yahweh is going to scatter Assyria. The tables are turned. Yahweh will scatter Assyria 
and even though the human hands of the Medes and the Babylonians will accomplish a physical victory, that physical victory is going to coincide first with a battle in the heavenly realms between Yahweh and Assyria's gods. And this is not unfamiliar to the Bible reader, right? You go to the book of Exodus and you see clearly a war between the gods of Egypt and the destruction that Yahweh brings upon them as he rescues his people. Same thing here with Assyria. Well, Nick, there's an interesting verse in chapter 2, verse 2, about Jacob being restored and the splendor of Israel. So the question comes to mind, when did God restore Jacob, and who devastated them that they needed to be restored? Yeah, um, so in my English Standard Version, these are... um like present tense stuff, uh, Yahweh is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. Uh, Jacob and Israel here, uh, I see a bit of poetic parallelism going on here. Yep. And it's being, uh, those two names are used to speak of the entire nation as a whole. Um, like I said, English Standard present tense, if you follow the Septuagint reading, Mm-hmm. Uh, it says that the Lord has put to flight the pride of Jacob. And um, I like that because the emphasis is on the end of Yahweh's punishment upon his people. Um, that punishment had been imposed through the Assyrians, through the Ninevites. Right. And right. Um, so, uh, again, I, I prefer the, the shift there in focus and attention on the end of punishment as opposed to the restoration of uh, the nation as a whole. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I, for me, I might see a little bit of both going on. So I think that Nahum is specifically referring to the northern tribes that were devastated in 721 B.C. by the Assyrians who took them into captivity. And the northern tribes were often just called Israel sometimes, or North Israel, while southern Israel was often just called Judah. Uh, Judah does get destroyed as well, but not until later by Babylon. There's a deportation in 606 B.C., 598 B.C., and then the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 586 B.C. Now all that, though, that's a little bit later, after the fall of Nineveh in 612 B.C., So even though Judah did come back from Babylonian captivity, the northern tribes that were destroyed by Assyria in 721, they never really recovered. The recovery of all the tribes, including southern and northern tribes, that was sort of the eschatological marker that people were looking for in the Second Temple era that would mark the return of uh, the Messiah and the gathering of all the tribes of Israel and the bringing of everybody into God's kingdom. But guess what? This was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when it says that Jews from every nation under heaven were at Jerusalem. And then that fulfillment continues on in Acts chapter 8 with the conversion of the Samaritans, who are the mixed Israelite races descendant from scattered Israel. So remember Jesus' final words. In Acts chapter 1, he says, You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all of Judea and Samaria, and then the ends of the world. And so I think uh, this passage here, Nahum 2.2, that it has been fulfilled. Jacob has been restored in Christ, and the Gentiles have come in to be fellow heirs with them in the kingdom. So that's the mystery that was revealed in the New Testament. 
So I see um, a little bit of, of both things going on there. Any thoughts on that, Nick? No, that makes sense. Yeah, I don't have a problem with that at all. Uh, well, still seems, in verse yeah. 2. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> there seems to be, yeah, there's a little bit more here in verse 2, right? It says, um, hmm, let me get there. There were vines that were destroyed, vine branches. So who are the vine branches? What are those, Nick? So a couple ways of looking at this. One, you take it as a symbol. And as a symbol, the image of the vine elsewhere in prophecy stands for Israel as a nation. And right. one that stands out for me, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. That's, uh, that's a big, important one about God's um, uh, vineyard. Uh, so it could be talking about that, that connection being made there. If we just take a kind of a straightforward reading, maybe uh, even dance close to the literal interpretation of this, the vine branches could be the vine branches of the grapes, uh, the grape vines. Uh, they could be in view here. Uh, those have been laid waste. Those have been destroyed, in which case this could be understood as talking about Israel's economy being absolutely devast- devastated and laid waste. Uh, that's what's been ruined here. Israel has been ruined uh, economically. Um, what say you, Alex? Well, I think that certainly was the case um, when before North Israel actually fell to the Assyrian Empire. They had these huge um, taxes they had to pay to Assyria. So that definitely fits the historical context. This uh, vine and vine branch language, I think uh, it is pretty classic Old Testament language to speak of Israel as a vine. The one that came to my mind was Psalm chapter 80, where Israel is pictured as a vine that was taken out of Egypt and planted in a land prepared by Yahweh. And as a result of Yahweh shining on them, his favor and his face and presence shining upon them, uh, they grow and they sprout forth branches and the branches spread out all over the entire land. But now, those branches have been destroyed. So it could be a picture here of um, the vine is still there, be Jerusalem, you know, the temple, but the branches have been destroyed, this North Israel destruction and deportation by the Assyrians. Um, Here's the thing, though. We get a New Testament update. This vine and vine branches language, this shows up in... Jesus's speech in John chapter 15. Right. So now Jesus is the vine and anyone in Christ is considered a branch that grows and spreads throughout the whole earth. Now remember when you're reading John 15, John's gospel was pretty big on describing Jesus as the new Moses and describing God's people as the new Israel, the new temple and the branches. So all of this imagery in John finds its foundation in helps us in our interpretation uh, from the Old Testament. Yeah, good little echo there in the New Testament. Oh, echoes. I like those. <laughs> well, Nick, who are the mighty men in verses 3 through 4, and how are they de- they described? Can you flesh that out for us a little bit? Yeah, so verse 3, the shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. Chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. I'm going to go with the uh, with the uh, Medo-Babylonian forces. Uh, 
mm-hmm. that coalition of forces. Um, there's a couple of ways, again, these verses could be taken. If we want to take them literally, uh, Xenophon in his uh, Cyropedia 641, um, what is that, section 6, chapter 4, verse 1, I don't know how they break that up there, but um, he talks about the Persian army. Uh, the Persians in Cyrus's army, they wore red or scarlet. Hmm. Uh, so it, there could be a connection there. Uh, these Medo-Babylonian forces were the forerunners to what would come eventually with the Persians. But sure. um, you end up with the Medo-Persian Empire eventually after Babylon. But uh, So it could be that in view here. But <clears throat> seeing as how this is poetry and this is figurative language, I mean, right there in the end of verse 4, there. They dart like lightning, lightning in the streets, right? That's that's a simile. So this is figurative language, <clears throat> figurative poetry. Uh, so all the red and all the scarlet could be the blood of the Ninevites. That's what's on the shields of these fierce warriors, which hmm. if you think about it, if, and I admit that this is a big if, if this work uh, made to pre-destruction Nineveh, this would have dealt a psychological... If, if, in other words, if this, if Nahum's work, if Nahum's prophecy had somehow made its way over and matriculated to the Ninevites, that would have, this would have dealt a psychological blow to the Ninevites. The Ninevites, they believed they were invincible, and yet here's Nahum describing their massacre. And so this could have been, again, if it's a big if, it had made its way over to Nineveh, to the Assyrian Empire... Nahum's describing their massacre. That would have been a, a big impact to them, mentally speaking. Yeah, it is. The other part of this prophecy is um, all this talk about the chariots, the cypress spears, um, all of this. Uh, the, the Medo-Babylonian forces were using the most advanced warfare technology of their day. And they were implementing some of the most advanced strategies that were available to them. Hmm. Um, And I think all these descriptions bear that out, and the history itself bears that out as well. Uh, They were a very fierce power to contend with. Um, How about you, Alex? What did you find about these mighty men and how they're described? Yeah, I like what you brought out about the uh, warriors um, and the armies and the... uh technology and strategies. I think that, that that bears itself out in history. But this verse, like many other verses in Nahum, uh, they seem to be uh, possibly multi-layered, multifaceted with illusions. So um, like you said, maybe the Babylonian warriors did dress in red. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 23 verse, ver- uh, verse 14 says that they were dressed in vermilion, and sometimes right. people translate vermilion as red. So uh, that could be very accurate. Uh, but also, uh, like you said, this could be a picture of the war here covered in the blood of his enemies. Now, as mentioned in the previous podcast, there also may be a layer of spiritual warfare behind these physical descriptions. And so here's a couple things that might point us that way. So the word mighty in the Hebrew is gibor. Uh, mighty men would be giborim, or the mighty ones. And this is a theologically loaded, like, heavy word. It's used to describe both gods, men, even demigods. Now, the verse that I find interesting is in uh, Psalm chapter 103, verse 20. 
And here's what that says. It says, Bless Yahweh, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Now that relates to Nahum 2.3, but it also relates to verse 4, which says that these warriors and their chariots, they're like torches, and they dash to and fro like lightning flashes. Now that's significant because the other verse in the Bible that talks about fire and lightning going back and forth like that is Ezekiel chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. Now that's where Yahweh rolls in on his throne chariot and he's surrounded by these living beings. And those living beings are described as beings who appear to be some type of throne guardian. They're, they're described as torches of fire. They're said to be darting back and forth like lightning. Then there's lightning coming out of the fire. So in the spiritual realm then, you have Yahweh's armies. He's, he's Yahweh of the hosts, host of angelic heavenly armies. In the spiritual realm then, he has beings that kind of fit the description used in Nahum 2 and 3. And this makes sense because, I mean, Yahweh, he uses his, um, his heavenly ones to go out and abate his wrath that has deep theological roots in it as well, like the destroying angel that goes out in the midst of the uh, 10th plague to put down the firstborn of all of Egypt's sons. In summary, Yahweh is going to war. That's what this is saying. And his victory in the heavenly realm assures the defeat of Assyria in the earthly realm. That's kind of the takeaway there. What do you think, Nick? No, I don't have a problem with that at, at all. In fact, I mean, if if um, I mean, we've already talked about it earlier about how Nahum probably would have seen Yahweh as the great scatterer behind the Medo-Babylonian coalition, mm-hmm. um, and certainly um, you're you're bringing out more of those overtones here as well in that verse. <clears throat> Well, Nick, this brings us to verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2, and we have this picture of a woman and her handmaids. Who do you think the woman is, and who are her handmaids? I'm persuaded that the the woman here that is being talked about, again, figurative poetry that's being utilized by Nahum very well, um, is Nineveh, the city itself, that's uh, being carried away into exile. Um, now, it talks about, your translation says, handmaids. Mine talks about her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves, beating their breasts. Um, her slave girls, I believe here would be um, a figure, a way of talking about the lowest socioeconomic class in the city. Um, even they are impacted by this. In other words, no one escapes the decree it is decreed is how verse 7 begins no one escapes the decree of Yahweh Um, uh, no partiality here and apparently from the Medo-Babylonians no mercy uh, as well Uh, what about you Alex what do you think yeah I think what you're bringing out within the physical warfare is very accurate and I guess we'll just keep tag teaming this where you're bringing out the physical and I'm going to take a step back and, and postulate about the spiritual, right? So <laughs> there is um, this singular woman in the book of Nahum that seems to be targeted out for attack. And yeah, this is Nineveh. This is Nineveh. But it not only appears here in verses 7 and 8, but also in chapter 3 in verses 4 through 7. Now we'll get there. But this singular woman, who is this that Yahweh is specifically targeting out? 
there's a long history of scholarship that seals um, that that sees a veiled reference here being made to Nineveh's premier goddess, whose name was Ishtar, or in another language, it's Inyana, Inyana or Ishtar. So Ishtar here is being stripped and then carried away. And then that gets a more fuller treatment in chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. And then the, hand, the handmaidens of verse 7 here in chapter 2 then, if this is Ishtar, the maidens would be those who follow Ishtar, the, the cultic devotees of Ishtar's uh, worship system. So the singular woman is, is no, he's not the only one targeted by Yahweh. Later on, um, there appears to be a singular man that is targeted by Yahweh, uh, chapter 3, verses 18 through 19, and we'll get to that. But it's relevant here, because in verse 7, the uh, very first part of the verse, it says, it is fixed. But that Hebrew there, it can also be translated as, he is made to watch. So who would be the he? Who is made to watch if the she is being stripped and carried away? Well, if the she is the goddess Nineveh, uh, goddess of Nineveh, Ishtar, then the he would have to be the top god of Nineveh and Assyria. That'd be Ashur. So it may be a picture here of Ashur rendered helpless in the unseen realm and can only watch as Yahweh marches in and destroys Ishtar. So that might be the underlying spiritual warfare between God and the gods and the destruction of these idols. What do you think, Nick? That's good stuff. Good stuff. Well, jumping down to verses 11 through 13, we have this imagery of lions and a lion's den. Nick, what does the lion imagery represent? Yeah, so he, uh, verse 11, where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? Uh, so uh, a lot of that lion imagery here. And I'm going to break this down. I, I see here the, the lion's cave or the lion's den as <clears throat> the national capital. Hmm. Um According to the commentators, Assyrian leadership regularly utilized the lion as a symbol of their ferocity in battle. That's right. Uh, it reminds me of Achilles in the movie Troy. Um, right before he fights Hector, and Hector wants to make an agreement with them, a pact that whoever uh, whoever dies, they'll be given burial rights. And Achilles says, there are no pacts between lions and men. Such a great line. <laughs> um, but... Uh, Sennacherib, uh, who was one of the Assyrian kings, is alleged to have said, um, like a lion I raged. So mm. you could say that the Assyrians prided themselves on oh, being like lions. Oh. See what I did there? <laughs> Good one. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> after Yahweh, through the Medo-Babylonian alliance, after Yahweh got through with them, the den would be empty. There would be no lions, no lionesses, no cubs, no carcasses of their defeated foes. The place of safety, which is what the lion's den was supposed to be, it's no longer safe. And that's because Yahweh is bringing judgment. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. In fact, if uh, Nineveh is this lion's den, then... Uh you could say that the people who were deported there and enslaved, you know, the low class, uh, they would be the lion's prey. 
put there simply to feed the lions. Uh, I, I suppose that those peoples would be joyful to be rescued from the lion's den. Yeah. Thank Yahweh. Yeah. Well, Nick, in chapter 2, verse 13, and in chapter 3, verse 5, Yahweh is called Yahweh of hosts. What does that mean? Yeah, the, it's a title. Um, this is what I found. It's a title that refers to his power. It refers to his might. Uh, could even perhaps point to his skill as a military strategist. He is the commander of the hosts of the heavenly angelic armies. And um, since he leads such a majestic and mighty force, no one can stand against him. And so uh, that's what I found. Anything else uh, that you might want to toss in there, Alex? No, that's good stuff. Just... um when that Yahweh of host imagery comes out, again, we're looking at war going on in the unseen realm, right? right. Yahweh coming forth with his spiritual warriors. And uh, that may play into the next question that we have. We're in chapter 3 now. And in chapter 3, verse 4, this begins our conversation about uh, verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. But in chapter 4, Nineveh is called a harlot and a sorceress. Why is that, Nick? Uh, you know, unfortunately, my English Standard Version doesn't emphasize the sorcery aspect of this verse like other translations do. Uh, mine reads, uh, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms. I mean, yeah, you got charms in there, but eh, it just really doesn't... Lucky charms? Yeah, exactly. It doesn't <laughs> pop like other translations do. Um, so first, the, the prostitute imagery... And like you said, it's going to bleed into 5 through 7 as well. But uh, it's fairly common in Scripture when uh, describing nations which are enemies of God. Uh, You have it all over the Old Testament. You can see Revelation chapters 17 and 18, uh, where Babylon, which is in my view of Revelation, it's a picture of Rome. Uh, Babylon is pictured as the great prostitute, the great harlot uh, in those two chapters. Here... Nineveh. Nineveh is pictured as seducing the weaker, poorer nations, calling them to uh, ally themselves with her. Um, kind of like, uh, I guess it'd be like seeing riding in a men's room stall for a good time. Call Nineveh. You know, it's just Ooh. that's and it's it's sick, it's perverted, and um, but this this only left these people with a sense of betrayal. It left them with emptiness. Um, so that's that's the prostitute imagery. The sorcery motif, which is the second part of this, that indicates that Assyria had bewitched these nations. Uh, they were spellbound by her power. And so you have sex, you have magic, probably both of those coming together in sex magic, which means that uh, Assyria, it seems they had used that kind of stuff uh, to seduce these nations. And, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. It is still... Status and power and wealth and the promise of more, which allures people today until eventually they're slaves to something very dark, very evil, and all that all that they're left with is uh, regret over a, a life that's been wasted, devoted to the wrong things. Hmm. Uh, what, what say you, Alex? Yeah, I'm going to dovetail on some of that stuff. I, that was good, good stuff. First, I want to give a hat tip to a guy named Gregory Dean Cook. He wrote a dissertation in 2014 about Nahum's allusions to spiritual warfare. 
and his paper concerning this passage about the um, harlot and her harlotries and sorceries. Uh, it was just a, a lot of good uh, stuff that I was able to glean from that. And so in his paper, he suggests reading Nahum chapter 3 verses 4 through 7 through the lens of Second Kings chapter 9. Now specifically, he's saying that Nahum is drawing a parallel between Nineveh, her goddess Ishtar, and the evil queen Jezebel from Israel's own history. Now check this out. Second Kings chapter 9 verse 22 says, When Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, What peace, so long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many? So here's the thing. The Assyrian Empire was a massive force of human traffickers. Seriously, here's, here's, here's how it would sound. Need more money for idol temples? No problem. Pillage another country. Deport them. Enslave them. Need more slave labor to build another idol temple? Uh, No problem. Crush another nation. Deport them. Enslave them. How are you so successful, Assyria? The magical power of the gods of uh, our nation, Ishtar. How are you so persuasive, Assyria? Well, I tell a potential vassal nation that will make them prosper and secure, which is a lie, by the way. It's the same kind of deception that you would see a human trafficker use as he tricks a poor village girl to get on a bus where she'll be driven... Uh, and and given her dream job. Uh, But what if the nation didn't believe them? Ah, we'll just crush them then. Kidnap the poor girl. Force her into sex slavery. That was the Assyrian Empire. Wow. So it's it's this image of them really, like, taking hold of, tricking, and enslaving all the peoples. It's It's really quite grotesque. Now, keep that in mind, because this brings us to our tough text of the day. Nick, tough text. Yeah. Our tough text of the day, Nick, is why is Yahweh then pictured here as shaming a naked woman? In fact, some have even gone so far as to ask it in verses 5 through 7, is this rape? What's going on here, Nick? Yeah, so um, Yahweh's turning the tables on Assyria and on Nineveh, mm-hmm. and uh, he's going to I mean, great... Uh, what you brought out was great for what we're talking about here because uh, all that prostitute behavior that Assyria has been engaging in with the other nations is actually just going to lead to them being humiliated like a prostitute. This kind of this kind of public shaming was the punishment for a woman who was guilty of adultery. Think of Hosea and his wife Gomer, who was a prostitute and. Um, she was stripped naked, and the way they did it back then, put on the auctioneer block naked, and then sold to the highest bidder. I mean, it was that's that's what the woman who was guilty of adultery got was just more shame, more humiliation. Now, for Assyria, she'd been eager, eager to reveal her nakedness to the world, but now she would suffer the same action as punishment. Modern audiences, I mean, we, we may not like such graphic imagery, and yet it cannot be forgotten that sin bears consequences, and sin is grotesquely ugly. Um, on top of this, uh, you have filth being thrown 
uh, verse 6, I will treat you with contempt, make you a spectacle, filth or garbage. Uh, that is going to rain down. That's just adding to the public ridicule uh, contained in this scene. Uh, now, as to the question of rape, you have you certainly have here exposure, public indecency. Um, it seems all this is against Nineveh's will. Who would want that? But rape, I don't know. Uh, you might get close, but I don't. I don't think that's what's in this text. Um, did you find something different, Alex? Well, there are some feminist scholars who will call this rape, and they're probably seeing it through the same scenario as when Absalom, the son of David, when he was wanting to usurp his father's throne, he uh, has David. David has to run for his life. He he runs away, and while he's gone, Absalom publicly rapes all of David's wives. Mm. And that might be the lens that the feminist scholars are seeing this in, because that, that was a thing that happened in the ancient Near East. Uh, however, I don't think that's what's happening here in Nahum. Now, continuing on the theme that the woman pictured here is Ishtar, it helps to remember that Ishtar was almost always pictured as a naked woman, often making hand gestures by her generals, and standing on top of lions and surrounded by lions. So this uh, personified Nineveh as her own goddess Ishtar and prostitute really here, this is not a prostitute in the sense of they are forced into sex slavery. This is a prostitute in the sense that Nineveh is the madam of the brothel. She's the one in charge enslaving people and forcing them to work as prostitutes. Now, here's what that word filth means, where it says God is going to heap filth on top of her. Uh, the filth that God throws on her is the same word for abomination. Now, abomination is stock terminology for idols. Now, go back to chapter 1. Remember verse 14 in Nahum 1, 14, it says, I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. That's what Yahweh said. Yahweh will destroy Ishtar's idol images and cover her with the ashes of her own images, showing the world that her nakedness and power is not so desirable after all. In fact, it's quite revolting. That's what's going on here. Now, this guy Gregory Cook, he sums it up quite nicely, so I'm going to quote from him for a minute. It says, In Nahum, the stripping of Ishtar reveals her true, horrifying nature, not the erotic body portrayed through art and myth. Just as the dogs had peeled away Jezebel's flesh, producing a ghastly spectacle, Yahweh would remove Ishtar's erotic exterior, exposing her hideous essence. All those who had lusted after her would flee in terror. With the spell broken, no nation would ever desire Assyria again. He also says, Mesopotamian religious texts called Ishtar a prostitute, associated her with prostitution, and considered her the patron goddess of prostitution. Nick, what do you think of that? Yeah, hard to hard to say it better, man. Man, good stuff, good stuff. I think that answers a lot of questions when you initially read this verse. If you bring in that spiritual warfare, there's a lot to it. But warfare in the physical realm is still dark, it's still ugly. Terrible things still happen. In fact, in verse 10, it talks about Assyria's warfare against Noamon, right? and the things that Assyria did to her enemies. And it even mentions that 
Children were being killed and dashed to pieces during war. Why, Nick? Why were the children killed during war? Uh, because, Alex, war is hell. Uh, and the Assyrians apparently are the devil when it comes to making war. Yeah, that's more true than you know. <laughs> yeah, rather than <laughs> rather than taking infants as uh, POWs, prisoners of war, they just killed them. Uh, just sheer brutality. Uh and also, I mean, I, I hate even looking at it this way, but this is the way they looked at it. You were taking care of the next generation. Uh, there's no need to worry about the next generation rising up and trying to brook the throne because they're gone. They're dead. You killed them when they were children. So um, that's the awful reality of what Assyria was doing. Man, makes you long for the... Uh fading of this world and entering of the uh, next one, right? No, that's right. Yeah. Ready for Jesus to come back. Well, Nick, this uh, passage continues on, and it talks about the table's going to be turned then. Just as Assyria did these terrible things to her enemies, now these terrible things are going to happen to Assyria. And as we talk about women, as we talk about children, we got to point out some of these things uh, to make sense out of this. Like in verse 13, it says that uh, the troops uh, and the people being attacked, they're going to be called, um, or they are called, they're called women. Why are the people under attack called women in 313? Yeah, your your troops are women in your midst. Um, at the risk of sounding politically incorrect, or worse, outright sexist, the Bible assumes certain distinct gender roles for men and women to fulfill. Men, typically speaking, are bigger, stronger, and so Warcraft would be left to them. Whereas women, typically speaking, are gentler, softer, they would have womanly work to engage in. Key word there in both of those uh, sentences is typical I know exceptions can be found, exceptions to the rule, but generally speaking, men are the brave warriors, women are more fearful of war and less inclined to that kind of aggressive behavior. So then, who do you want fighting in the foxholes when war breaks out? The Bible assumes that the brave warrior men would enter the fray. Women, on the other hand, would be fearful or lack courage, the courage necessary to defend the motherland. Therefore, the familiar picture in the Old Testament for fearfulness in battle, in warriors, that became women. Hmm. And you can see Isaiah 19 and verse 16, Jeremiah 50 verse 37, 51 and verse 30 all make reference to the same imagery that Nahum is using here to talk about your troops have become women in the midst of battle. Uh, so that's what's going on here um, and why that image is used here poetically to talk about the troops in the midst of war. Does that make sense? Yeah, in fact, that can be quite humiliating, right, to take this brave, big, strong warrior man and have him so defeated that he is uh, – you call him a little girl, you call him a woman. I mean that's really – it's derogatory to the man, right? It's not even really meant to be derogatory to women, 
In fact, this may just be a reference to how Assyria would mock the nations to which they conquered. So get this, there are some Assyrian epithets, these are like titles for kings, that often included the manly one. And when Assyrians defeated their enemy troops, those defeated troops were described in these Assyrian uh, writings as women, and their defeated kings were described as prostitutes. But Yahweh here turns the tables on Assyria. It says, now the manly ones have become like women and prostitutes. Yahweh directly challenges the Assyrians' masculinity Hmm. and then makes fun of them by calling their warriors a bunch of girls. A lot of polemic going on here in the text. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, Nick, uh, what else do we have? Verse 14. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Draw water for the siege, strengthen your forts, go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. Talking about the fortifications there of Nineveh, mm. Alex, can you tell us a little bit about how strong the Ninevites' fortifications were? Yeah, well... Some sources that I've read say that Nineveh's wall was 100 feet tall, 100 feet wide, and 8 miles long. Whoa, are you telling me they built a wall? (laughs) Sheesh, how offensive. (laughs) Built it on the backs. And it was huge. Yeah. (laughs) On the backs of slaves. (laughs) But that wall gets destroyed. Yeah, and that's that's an impressive wall. Um, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that they you they had the best that money could buy when it came to their fortifications. But even Nahum is ridiculing them. Build it even stronger. And the point is, of course, there, there's no match for the Lord's judgment. There's, you're no match for when God decides it's your time, um, Assyria, Nineveh, it's over. Well, Nick, as the downfall then of Assyria continues to unfold, you have some classic imagery being described, but uh, it gets a little confusing here in verses 15 through 17 when he starts talking a lot about locusts. Now, as I'm reading that passage, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, the locusts must be this group, but then it changes, and I was like, oh, wait, maybe it's this group, maybe it's this group. Which groups are being referred to as locusts in chapter 3, verses 15 through 17? Yeah, that's a good question. It, It... On the one hand, it could be viewed as the Ninevites. They're being encouraged to increase their battle troops, just like they were encouraged, hey, build up your fortifications. You know, um, call out for a draft and draft as many battle troops as you can, though it's not going to do any good in the long run, right? In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. So that's one way of looking at it. On the other hand, it could just be the invading hordes, and they're invited to pour on the numbers in their battle with the Assyrians and uh, more and more troops entering uh, the fray here. A couple different ways of looking at it, but there may be a middle way here, Alex. Yeah, I see it as a both and. It seems that Nineveh and her enemies are being represented here as locusts, but their enemies are locusts who come in and strip them. And no matter how much Nineveh tries to rally the troops, and to recuperate, they become like locusts that hide and then disappear when the sun comes and they just flee to the mountains. And that's the imagery of all these refugees scattering on the mountains, people fleeing from Nineveh. Now in verse 18 and 19, the last two verses here of the book, we get this singular male character that is targeted 
And first things first, verse 18, it says, O king of Assyria. Now, which king of Assyria is being referenced here, Nick? So uh, a couple different options uh, could be in view here. One could be uh, Asarhaddon II. He was actually the guy who was on the throne when the fall of Nineveh happened. And so uh, he's being invited to look around, essentially, and see that his shepherds are asleep and his nobles slumber. The peoples are scattered everywhere. In other words, they're all dead. Hmm. And so he would look around and find his fellow leaders, governmental leaders, uh, dead. Uh, Or it could be the guy who ruled three years after the fall. There was a... I don't have his name, but he was just kind of a paper ruler. Um, he tried to hold the empire together, but it was no use. Um, again, the peoples, they're scattered on the mountains. The the scatterer had become the scattered, hmm. and so there really wasn't a nation to oversee. So a couple options there um, for uh, who this could be historically. Sure. Can you say? I like your Esarhaddon II um, approach, and I'm going to agree with that and then peel back the physical and see if there's also something going on in the spiritual realm. Go for it. So the Hebrew literally says here, uh, what's translated, O king of Assyria, it literally says, King Ashur. Now, there is a supreme deity of the Assyrian pantheon, and his name is Ashur. So if this is a reference to the supreme deity of the Assyrian pantheon, then we have another veiled reference to the spiritual power and king lurking behind the human ruler. Here's another reason to see it this way. Uh, The god Ashur may be the power in mind here because it says that your shepherds are sleeping. Now it's well documented that Assyrian kings were called shepherds. They were tasked with gathering and ruling over all of the people that belonged to their gods. In other words, to the Assyrians, shepherds equals kings. So just like Ishtar was humiliated and sent away, and in history, she really did continue on because she was transported into the Babylonian pantheon. But in this passage, we see this deity, Ashur, defeated and then left to rot with an incurable wound. Hmm. Which brings us to verse 19 there, Alex, uh, about the wound that is incurable. What is that incurable wound? Well, the Septuagint says that there's no remedy for your bruise, and your wound has festered. Now, when you hear that bruise language, it's hard not to think about the serpent in the Garden of Eden and God's prophecy about the serpent having his head bruised. Ultimately, we see this accomplished by Christ on the cross, right? Christ is the one, the seed of the woman who fulfills the crushing of the serpent's head, bruising his head. It's a fatal blow. Now, this goes hand in hand with the comments from the previous podcast about Belial and who Belial is and his um, basically equation to to Satan in the way they talked about him in the intertestamental period and his ultimate defeat that will come when the Messiah arrives. I think God is really, in these last two verses, I think he's really talking about Satan and Satan's final defeat, which already began with an incurable wound and a festering, rotting away of his being that started his last days counting down from Calvary. It's like Psalm 82. Psalm 82, God tells the other gods that though they're gods, they will die like men. 
So you see, the powers of darkness in the heavenly realms have only a certain time left before they expire. And I think that countdown began 2,000 years ago uh, via Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Christ mm. at the cross stripped those powers and authorities of their power, of their authority. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's good stuff, good connections. I'll just toss in here the historical view is that that, f- that wound is fatal uh, for the city of Nineveh. And this is essentially the prophet saying she's never going to be rebuilt. And, I mean, archaeologically, that's a, that's a historical fact. Right. She wasn't rebuilt. Right. So, so Nineveh becomes a uh, foreshadow or archetype of the destruction of Satan to come. But in verse 19, then, if we're looking at the actual thing that happened in history, does this verse really say that people are actually celebrating the downfall of Nineveh. What do you think, Nick? How could a loving God allow people to celebrate something so terrible as people being killed or this nation being undone? How how could a loving God do that? I think that's probably the the contemporary voice, the modern voice today when it comes to a verse like that where, yeah, it essentially says everyone who hears the news about you, they're going to celebrate. They're going to throw a party. And I hear you, yes, God is love, but God is also holy. In Nineveh, Assyria, they were guilty of unceasing evil. That's the last two words of the book. Evil which never stopped. Evil which had spread all over the known world. And we've detailed a number of different ways in which they were engaged in just evil, evil stuff. Uh, gross inhumanity to their fellow man, as well as gross spiritual debauchery. Imagine being under a regime in which the evil like that, it didn't stop. It was unceasing. And then one day, that world power was taken out. I think of the end of the movie uh, Return of the Jedi, Uh, the sixth episode of the Star Wars anthology. Spoiler alert, by the way, if you haven't seen it. After the evil Emperor and the Empire are defeated, the entire... Wait, don't tell me, don't tell me. I'm just kidding, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) After the defeat of the Empire and the Emperor, the whole far, far away galaxy celebrates. And look at the people who suffered for decades under the centuries under the oppressive regime of the Ninevites and the Assyrians what would they have thought when the evil empire and the emperor himself was undone how about a contemporary example look at look at the people who suffered for decades under the oppressive regime of Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi remember the news scenes people they were celebrating at the demise of these evil dictators um So all of these uh, examples, real, fictitious, I I think that's what comes to mind when I read these verses. When bad guys lose, it's a good thing. Finally, at last, relief from their unceasing evil. Um, As Christians, while, yeah, I think we should lament the death of a blatant sinner, someone who lived in open rebellion to God and died and went to hell, we ought to lament that, but on the other hand, ding dong, the witch is dead, right? It was, And it was Yahweh, the God and Lord of history, who had worked to correct that oppression, 
to undo the injustice. He has righted the wrongs. He has saved the oppressed. And I believe Nahum shows us it's possible to celebrate the wrath of God. Yeah, I think those are those are good thoughts. Important to remember that when evil is punished, it's worthy of rejoicing. You want you want God to be a just God. You want Him to be merciful and just, and He works that out. That's why it says He's slow to anger. In chapter one, He doesn't just on a whim, you know, overnight change His mind and take out a whole place. There's a build up to it, and if you think about it today, when human trafficking rings are taken down. Is that good? Yeah, we, we clap. We rejoice. Yeah. We support organizations that work towards taking down human trafficking. Now, Assyria... And punishing the bad guys and rescuing those that they're hurting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And in the ancient world, Assyria was a giant empire of human traffickers. Even, even more worse than that, they did all kinds of evil things. Now, get this. If, if this is a veiled reference to Satan, then it's intended... Um, that all of creation will clap and rejoice at the resurrection because that's when we're going to be revealed to be the true sons of God. We're going to judge angels and Satan and his hosts are going to be destroyed forever and ever and all of creation will say amen. We would not hesitate to clap and rejoice at the destruction of Satan. We've got to keep in mind that Satan is using also in empowering human uh, representatives. Like Jesus says, you're sons of the devil. That's a real thing. And so we need to understand that um, when God punishes evil, that's a good thing. Well, Nick, we're at the end of the book of Nahum. What are we taking away as Christians? We studied Nahum. What do we take away? That's a good question. Um, but I, I think of Paul in Romans chapter 11. Note then this, the, the kindness and severity of the Lord. Yahweh is good, without a doubt. Nahum 1.7 affirms it. Um, but Yahweh is also avenging and wrathful. 1 verse 2 of Nahum uh, brought that out. He has wrath, he has severity toward the oppressor and those who align themselves with the oppressors. Uh, pull back the veil as you've been doing, Alex. He has wrath toward the bad guys, the bad spiritual forces of darkness that are behind those bad guys. Um, but he's also good to the hurting. Uh, he's good to the afflicted, uh, provided we continue in his goodness. Otherwise, we too will be cut off, right? So we need to learn well the, list, the, the lesson of Nineveh. God rules over everything. God judges with perfect judgment, those who do evil, those who oppress others, they're going to meet a bitter end. But those who trust God and keep trusting God will be kept safe, both now and forever. I think we need to be careful about how we align ourselves with the power structures <clears throat> in this world uh, as well, the, the governing authorities. Hmm. Um, not every politician who makes a promise is a good guy. And it, that goes, by the way, across the aisle. Republican, Democrat, Independent, Libertarian, whatever. Um, we need to be careful how we align ourselves with the power structures and the power systems today. Because, I mean, if just, just a, a reading not only of Nineveh, but the whole Bible yeah. affirms there are spiritual forces that are behind those things. And um, the only power structure, the only power system that we need to get behind is King Jesus and his cross and the gospel. 
Uh, I say amen to that. In addition to the, not every politician uh, is uh, trustworthy, but um, not every military campaign is a good thing. Mm, yeah. And imperialism can take a dark, dark turn, as we've seen in the history of the world and in Assyria. My takeaway here is that evil will have its day on earth. That's history. It's undeniable. Evil will have its day. But, as we see here in Nahum, Yahweh will turn the tables. I see Nahum as the Christian's foreshadow of the resurrection. And so, for the suffering of any believer in the world, uh, from small to great, and for the even the the pain and lament that we see when we just hear about the kind of evil going on in the world. I would second uh, your thought. There's only one king, it's King Jesus, and he has uh, tasked us to go make disciples of all nations. And we need to be patient because vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will repay. God will avenge. There is no evil on this earth, no tragedy that will not be reversed and avenged. And Yahweh will do that, and it will culminate at the resurrection and the return of Christ. I'm looking forward to that day. Amen. Yeah, that's good stuff. Well, Nick, that does it for the book of Nahum. And what do you think we'll do next? <laughs> uh, no idea. If we've talked about it, I can't remember it. Sorry. <laughs> I thought you would remember because I forgot. Uh, dread. Ah. Um, hey, in the meantime, while we try to figure that out, why don't you, oh listener, uh, go into the uh, Apple Podcast Store or go into the Google Play Store and search Swordplay. You'll find the podcast in both of those respective places. Subscribe to the podcast. Uh, leave a comment, a review uh, about the show. Help us get the word out about it uh, so that more people can uh, be enriched by the study of God's word. That's right. And if you have any questions, we welcome that. We want your thoughts, your feedback, your comment, uh, both um, constructive criticism and uh, compliments. Either way. Emphasis on constructive, by the way. Yes. <laughs> Send it our way to... The email address swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We'll read your question. We'll answer it. Uh, we would love to, to correspond with you out there. And that has been another episode of Swordplay. We'll see you next time.